0: Welcome to the 10th episode of the podcast series Bridging the Gaps, which is co hosted by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White.
1: And I'm Sean O'Conline. This is our final episode in the tumultuous year of 2020. In the course of the year, we've all been made very aware of the vulnerability of the global economy and of global public health, and of how quickly and unpredictably deterioration can take place. This reinforces the idea, long advocated by FAFSA members, that economics is only part of a larger ecology rather than its controller or master
0: our podcasts in 2020 have explored a wide range of topics that are relevant to the situation we find ourselves in now including the links between health biodiversity and access to nature the particular challenges faced by young people at this time the changes that we've seen in travel and how it will need to evolve in the future and the potential for a world basic income to help with global public health crises
1: We've also explored the notion of a well-being economy and how it connects with the concept of enough, the vital role of cultural diversity, the mental health implications of the current crises and innovative ways of addressing changes we'd all like to achieve.
0: So what can we expect from 2021? There are some signs of hope in the renewed interest that many people have in supporting their local economies and helping them to survive the lockdowns. And more generally in the increased emphasis which is being placed on health and relationships rather than simply on work for the sake of work but obviously there are huge challenges ahead as well for one thing a more well-being oriented economy will need to include a huge energy transition away from fossil fuels which in turn will mean shifting to an economy which doesn't need to constantly expand its productivity in order to function this requires a change in vision and narrative about the nature of economic success
1: So, to wrap up 2020, we'll be zooming out and taking a more holistic view of the economy. We'll discuss the importance of narrative, the roots of the conventional narratives about the economy, and how they could change in the company of Mariana Mirabile, an Argentinian economist with a PhD in Development Economics, who is involved in the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Mariana has also worked in international institutions and is currently a partner in systems innovation.
0: You began by asking Mariana what led her to start questioning some of the assumptions in neoclassical economics and to take an interest in ecological economics and systems thinking.
2: Indeed, I am a neoclassical economist by training, as most economists of my age, I'm 35 years old, are, right? And I am an ecological economist by choice. In a way, basically, I studied economics. My bachelor's degree actually has a finance specialization. I was being trained to be a broker, actually. I never became one. And basically, I liked mathematics a lot, and I saw economics kind of as a quantitative discipline. To me, a good economist was one that could do econometrics, at least in my view at that time. And when I say in my view, it's as well likely in the view we were being trained in. Because, you know, with 18, 19 years old, one tends to follow the flow. Or at least I did. So I basically finalized my studies in classical economics and I went on working. I also did a PhD on development economics and I did most of my career in international organizations. Around five years ago, I could say, I started questioning some policy recommendations. Many of them looked to me like quick fixes rather than the kind of systemic changes we need. So basically I started researching for alternative policy recommendations. And in the process, I came across system thinking. I came across ecological economics, and in particular, Herman Daly, who is an economist that influenced me a lot. And I also came across complexity theory, which also influenced my thinking a lot.
0: Herman Daly actually gave the first FASTA lecture years and years ago, 1999, I think it was. And he's been a big influence on us as well, in FASTA.
1: Could I just ask you, Mariana, this um, move to thinking more from a systems point of view or the whole perspective of innovation in particular, what were the insights that that gave you that you think is not really current in traditional or the everyday economist, i probably want you to think a little bit about how economics seems to be totally consumed by growth it's the main mantra which is there without taking all of the other implications into mind so could you comment on the perspective that you have about looking at it from a holistic systems point of view which might be different to the way mainstream economics seems to work
2: sure and let me maybe say that actually i kind of discovered system thinking completely by chance. It changed the way I look at things, but I really came across it completely by chance because it's still an alternative way of thinking. It's still not really in the mainstream. And once I discovered it, I really couldn't stop because it makes a lot of sense in a way. On the question on how does a holistic perspective change the way I see economics, I would say that I started seeing economics differently even before I got into system thinking. So as soon as I discovered in particular ecological economics and Herman Daly, I started realizing that the analytical framework on which most economists, because most economists are trained as classical or no classical economists, analytical framework on which most economists base their decisions or their theories is one that is not really adapted to the current situation. Let me explain a little bit on that. Basically, the typical analytical framework of economics, the one that we are taught in the first, I would say in the first lesson of economics courses, is the input-output model, right? So the input-output model is one where you have inputs, you have agents of transformation that will transform those inputs into outputs, which become the gross domestic product, the GDP of production. And for classical and neoclassical economics, the inputs are capital and labor. For environmental economics, which is fairly different from ecological economics, they consider capital, labor, and environmental inputs, so natural resources. But natural resources are still inputs to the economy. So the economy is the whole. If you think about it, you could think about it, the economy being a big circle and the environment being a small circle within the economy. So when the economy expands and grows, when we have economic growth, since the economy is seen as a whole, then what happens is that it expands in the void. There are no opportunity costs to its expansion because it doesn't displace anything. Mm -hmm. The key insight, in my view, from ecological economics is that the economy is a subsystem of the biosphere and not the other way around. And that is probably obvious to anybody that is not an economist, I would say. Um, but really, it's not for many economies because of this analytical framework we, we are taught at school. It was not for myself for years. So basically, this idea of the economy as a subsystem changes completely the way one sees the economy because then the big circle is the environment. And mm-hmm. the circle in the middle is the economy that when it expands, well, it takes the space of the big circle. And then it's only then that we start seeing opportunity costs Mm. when it comes to economic growth, because for the small circle in the middle to expand, it needs to displace the environment. And of course, we don't want the, the economy to be as big as the biosphere, because that would mean that we no longer have ecosystem services and all that the environment provides. So basically, I think that that change in perspective from the economy being the system towards the economy being a subsystem of the environment changes the question. And I could argue that it's that analytical framework of the economy as a system that is blinding economies from asking questions regarding economic growth.
0: Mm. Another part, I think, of what tends to be overlooked is the role of energy in the economy. As you say, there's labour, there's capital, there might be environmental inputs for environmental economics. But energy as well plays a really key role in the economy and in ecological economics. I think we're really confronted with this very directly because energy comes from the environment. And for loads of reasons, we have to be very, very careful about energy use now. Fossil fuels are problematic in tons of ways, partly because of the effect on the climate and also because it's getting harder to source high-quality fossil fuel, which means that there's also a resource depletion issue and we have to gradually eliminate them over time anyway. And we have to change to renewables, but they're not the same kind of energy. (laughs) They're a different kind of energy, which behaves very differently and can't really adapt to the sort of economy we have now. As you say, it's the economy that has to adapt to the environmental constraints, which includes using much less energy and in much, much different ways from the way we use it now. It's an aspect of the blindness that you mentioned in classical economics. It's the sidelining of energy or treating it as though it's easily substitutable. You can easily change one kind of energy for another and just carry on the way you did before and not worry. And as I'm sure you're well aware, the big argument you often hear now is that Well, we can keep expanding the economy. All we have to do is decouple growth from environmental damage. We just have to have green growth, and then we can keep expanding the economy. Do you have any comment to make about that? It's something we hear so much, mainstream analysis.
2: Absolutely. And if I may also comment on what you mentioned on energy, and I think you mentioned there a key word, which is the substituability, Mm. a very difficult one in English. Um, Because another assumption of the classical economic framework is the substituability between factors of production. You know, the production function is the multiplication of capital, labor, and then environmental economics adds Mm -hmm. The environment. Yeah. But a multiplication means that you can replace one factor by another, which leads you to the idea that all scarcity is relative. Well, it may not be if some goods are not replaceable by others. And this substitutability assumption worked maybe fairly well when there was only capital and labor in there, because indeed capital machines tend to replace labor. But it's not necessarily the same with environmental resources. So that's yet another assumption of classical economics that does not hold today. And maybe saying to that, that of course, economists, classical economists, understood all that. It's not that they didn't, it's just that the situation was so different. As Daly says, before we were living in an empty world, we were very small. We couldn't in any case catch all the fish that was out there to catch, right? We didn't have enough boats. But now the situation changed completely and we're living in a full world. The limiting factor, which is what we should be optimizing as economists, changed. And we didn't change the analytical framework, and we didn't change the decisions we are taking. And we are still, as you mentioned, as Sean mentioned, focusing on growth, more of what we already have a lot, which is production of man-made capital, right? Mm -hmm. On the decoupling question, indeed, the idea that we can grow the economy while at the same time reducing environmental impact is the key idea behind green growth. I studied the data quite a lot a year and a half ago (laughs) so maybe it's not that fresh in my mind but basically what i found because green growth was one of the policies i questioned and that actually led uh, me to start researching about alternative policy recommendations what i found is that indeed once one takes into consideration physical loss the absolute decoupling assumption doesn't really hold Mm. technology can help a lot to reduce the amount of materials per unit of output. But what is often not mentioned in the discussion is that the number of outputs is increasing. So actually, at the end of the day, what we see is an acceleration of emissions. Actually, emissions never went down at the end of the day, even though we never had as much technology as we do and maybe just another thing on decoupling is that the data that is used on the coupling that's the best data we have available is actually fairly partial because in the decoupling data you don't take into consideration offshoring you sometimes do because some of the data is on demand-based emissions but still the demand-based emission the way the data is calculated misses parts of the emissions. We do not consider either the financiarization of the economy, which implies that actually, for example, real estate increased in value but the number of apartments stay the same. So that is a way of seeing the monetary figure go up and the natural resources don't, but it's just because the price went up, but the apartments are still the same in a way. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and there are a few, a few more reasons that now I don't have them very fresh in my mind why the data is actually fairly partial. Mm-hmm. Because there is not much evidence that absolute decoupling can happen at the global level, which is what we need to reduce emissions and environmental impacts.
0: I think that for a lot of people who have been trained to think of growth as the goal, it's just very hard to think differently about what we want from the economy and what the economy is supposed to be producing or how it's supposed to be functioning. It's it can be very hard to get away from that, I think. And so you, it keeps coming up all the time. Like, sometimes it's framed different ways, like inclusive growth, green growth, sustainable growth. You know, there's all these adjectives that are supposed to make it sound like it will work. As you say, the evidence doesn't really seem to be there.
2: And I could say it's actually part of the implicit assumptions that we're not questioning. That's why actually when one discusses with someone that is pro-growth at all costs, and growth of course can be good as well, it's not always bad, but yeah. the thing is that there are certain implicit assumptions that if with the person you discuss, you, if you do not have this idea of the economy as a subsystem, if you see the economy as the system, as the whole, then you just do not even see the point of why growth can be bad. And I don't blame, in a way, economies that think that way because I was one of them as well Uh, I mean we were trained like that so it's fairly natural that yeah I started questioning this really fairly by chance in a way so many economists may not have had that chance yet I hope they do soon but (laughs)
0: What was the chance? You just came across something by Herman Daly? Or what was
2: the... You know, I'm not sure to completely remember how I came across that. I think that I saw a video from therules.org, which was a group that communicated about alternative economic theories. And I saw a video on, it was called Green Growth Explained. Maybe that was what actually led me to question the thing. But I I definitely saw something. It's not my saying, hmm, maybe this is not right. I, I was triggered by something, mm-hmm. um, which I think is sometimes necessary when it comes to an assumption that is so implicit and so, so everywhere, really. No one is questioning around you, so why would you, right? So that's why I think it's very interesting to have this type of discussions and to talk about this so that maybe we trigger questioning in some other people and they, they get to do research and, of course, make their own opinions about it.
0: Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Mariana, could I just bring you back and to a certain extent bring you forward? You mentioned fairly early on there this notion of the economy or economics being almost like a subset of the natural world, of a much bigger picture. And that kind of leads me on to, I think you had a personal journey on this notion of perspective or assumptions or narratives and how you got much further into, if you like, your interest in food and agriculture and permaculture and systems innovation and so on, which are very different perspectives from the traditional economic perspective. It's almost that economics can solve all the problems. So I'd love you to talk about that journey a little bit and particularly how those perspectives and narratives are doors which open to innovation, so to speak, because I know you're interested as well in this whole systems innovation perspective.
2: Sure, yes. Basically, again, a little bit by chance, but I decided in 2019 to take a year off because I started questioning a lot of these things. And, you know, when you start asking questions, then you get more questions. So questions had started piling up in my mind. And so I decided to take, and I had the privilege to, to be able to take some time off, where indeed I tried to go deeper on ecological economics on system thinking, and I added to that the study of cognitive sciences and neuroscience because I wanted to understand a little bit more how our brain worked, because the brain is what will pay attention to some information and not to other. It's the um, capteur, I don't know how to say that in English, but yeah, it's through our brain that that information passes basically. So I discovered the um, whole community basically working on narrative change. Mm -hmm. and a whole community basically encouraging activists to take into consideration the results of cognitive science in the same way that they did for the climate sciences. So basically encouraging activists to understand a little bit more, and economists, how our brain works so that we can communicate better. What I learned from that is that, of course, we see reality through a filter, and that filter are, of course, our values and our beliefs, which are in turn determined by the stories we have been exposed to. Just to give an example of that, in cities, we accept using the public space as huge and very cheap car stockage because we have mainly been exposed to the automobile industry story of how cities are and what it means to be free in a city. Mm-hmm. All that space could be parks, but we accept to use it as a stockage of a mode of transportation that is, by the way, 95% of the time still. Um, because of the stories we have been exposed to. So the stories, the narrative we have been exposed to really shapes the way we see reality. There is really a lot of power in stories. And as an economist, I came to very interested in what was the neoliberal story, because the world is neoliberal today, so there must be a successful neoliberal story. And indeed, I realized how how many resources and how much neoliberals understood the power of stories very early. In my view, it's a big part of why the world is neoliberal today. A second reason why I came interested in this uh, narrative or stories perspective and in communication more in general is because at the end of the day, people cannot go a place they have not first imagined, right? Mm -hmm. And fortunately, we cannot push people to change. Fortunately, they need to want to change. That's very good news. But then that means that if, for example, we want to transition to a different type of economy, to a well-being economy, we need to create longing, desire for that alternative future. And I got more and more interested in that when I started reading from communication experts from institutions such as NEON in the UK, the Narrative Initiative, the Frameworks Institute. They do excellent work on communication taking into consideration cognitive sciences, but also doing field work. And basically one of their key conclusions is that one of the key obstacles for change is fatalism. People think that change is not possible. And people have really in mind this idea of a binary future, capitalism or communism. This idea that comes, it's not there by chance. That their slogan was, there is no alternative. And they repeated that a lot. Um, so basically, that is, according to communication experts, a key barrier to change. And as I think barrier it's, in a way, as well, an opportunity to remove that barrier if we really want to transition towards a well-being economy or a different type of economy. Where would you say the fatalism comes from? What they find is that there is a very limited understanding of what the economy is And coming back a little bit to Sean's questions on how a system perspective changes the way one sees the economy. This system perspective is not very well known in society and there is really this idea that the economy is rigged, that the economy is like that and you cannot change that. This idea that the economy is like a container where you can put things in and take things out from it, but that you cannot really change it. So people do not see the economy as something that we could design differently. Mm-hmm. They see it as something that is. And in particular, I could add to that, that not only they don't see that, or at least what I understood from the results, not only they think that the economy cannot be designed, I think there is as well this binary imaginary that takes any change effort towards the idea that if it's not this system, then it's communism. That frightens a lot of people.
0: Your eco-fascism, one kind of totalitarianism or another, but totalitarianism anyway. And I think the way the economy is talked about, the kind of language that is used, often makes it sound like something inevitable. Like people talk about forecasts, economic forecasts, forecasts for growth for the next month or something, as though it's the weather, something out there that we have no control over, and it's a natural phenomenon. And then another thing you often hear is this it 's you tie it in with assumptions about human nature a lot too. People act this way because that 's just the way people are and to me, that's a very provincial way of looking at these things. It's very much, it's a particular mentality which insists that it applies to all of humanity. And yet there are loads of other ways of looking at things.
2: But I could argue that it's not really surprising in the sense that one thing on narrative is that a narrative includes certain things and excludes others. The dominant narrative today is a neoliberal narrative. It has been for the last 50 years and they were really good at communicating. I think we actually, we have a lot to learn from their communication strategy because they we're really good at it and the thing is that the neoliberal narrative in particular on human nature it says human beings are egoistic are selfish
0: yeah
2: Uh, that's how they are and of course we are (laughs) selfish it's not that we are not but we're not only that yeah. it's just that all of the rest since it's not in the narrative does not exist
1: mariana could i just take you back i love your notion of incorporating design in the narrative of narratives so to speak and uh, i know in permaculture design is an absolutely key constituent if you like so the notion of how you design and how everything interrelates and how there's a hierarchy within permaculture of what you should focus on and so on now i'm not sure i know you're not an expert in permaculture but I'd love you to link it in in some way and particularly how there are different almost like design methodologies or approaches to systems which are used in different sectors and I don't think people are aware of this. Permaculture is probably mostly associated with food and agriculture. I know you've been a little bit involved in that and I'd love to link that in if you could.
2: One key link I see is basically permaculture is based on a holistic paradigm, it's based on a system-based paradigm, and a system-based paradigm, I could say, maybe the key insight from it is the fact that the results we obtain are the result of the structure of the system, and the structure of the system depends on how we design it at least for social systems, where there are physical laws that put limits on that, but for social systems, really, we can design the structure so that it leads to one result or the other. Your question takes me to the notion of systems innovation, in a way, which is, in a nutshell, innovation at the system level rather than at the parts or elements level. So basically, rather than focusing our attention on things, for example, on adding fertilizers or on electrifying cars, we think about how to design the permaculture field or cities so that the result that emerges from the system, there is this notion of emergence in system thinking, so the result that emerges from the system is a desirable result. The notion of systems innovation, if I define each of the terms, by innovation I mean doing things differently, and this can be with or without technology, and systems are made of elements or parts, and the connection between these parts. And those connections determine the system structure. Depending on those connections, you will have a system design or another one. To give a very simple example, a pile of bike pieces is not a system, but if they are arranged in a certain manner, then they become a bike, and they provide the functionality of transporting you from A to B, right? So in systems, there is this notion of elements, of connections, or the ways things are arranged, which is the structure which can be designed and of function that is a result from that system. What happens a lot is that we, with an analytical thinking mindset, we tend to focus on parts. So we have a complex problem and we try to understand which part of the system is creating the problem as what we could do in a machine, right? We, we try to find the piece to repair or replace. That's what we do in industrial agriculture. We need more of something, fertilizers. There are too many insects that are eating our plants, insecticides, right? So we fix parts. Another example would be air pollution in a city. If we know that cars are the source of air pollution, electric cars are the solution. That, that's simple. That's innovation at the parts level. The issue is that complex systems do not work as machines, and the results we observe From complex systems, and most of the systems we are interested in today are complex because complexity really rise a lot in the last decades, the results that come from complex systems are really generated by the system's structure and not by any individual part. That is why the innovation efforts so far have failed to lead us to a more sustainable future in a way. Because they are focused on the elements of the system and not on the system's design not on the way that these systems are arranged. And that is where potential for change is in a system. What system thinking allows you to see these connections that are most of the time abstract. So basically systems innovation, which I think links fairly nicely with the idea of permaculture, is about innovating on how things are arranged. It's innovating at the level of the system's design, rather than at the level of the individual part. That can, of course, be complementary, it's not one or the other. The issue is that most of our focus is on innovation at the product level.
1: This journey that you've had on complexity, I'm also fascinated by that and the importance of relationships and connections. So maybe you might just say where you're at at the moment and where you might see the future going. Where is all this leading you to? What would you like to explore next?
2: Maybe let me start from the beginning in a way. When I started asking questions about certain policy recommendations and about what I had been taught in university on economics, the first feeling was to actually feel very ill-equipped. When I said before that, Many policy recommendations were quick fixes. We were recommending quick fixes. I include myself in that category because actually I didn't know how to do differently. That's all I knew how to do. Uh, Maybe the turning point for me was when I understood at a certain point that we were trying to solve today's problems, which are complex, with a mindset of the past that works very well for simple problems. Analytical thinking is very useful. It's just not the right tool for complex problems. And many of the problems we want to solve today are complex solving, right? Like global warming. And it's really not a very nice feeling when you have studied. I have studied for decades. And I also had, in a way, the, a good intention. I wanted to contribute to positive change. I wanted to be part of the solution. And I just realized that I wasn't. I wasn't because I wasn't using the right mindset, even if the intention was good complexity theory made me understand that I didn't understand systems, that I was providing recommendations on changes on systems I didn't understand, and that's not a very good thing to do, I could say, but I hadn't understood that before. Yeah, I I focused myself on studying the different theoretical concepts and the tools to apply that I have joined a platform called Systems Innovation that provides online courses and a number of tools to implement to the real world. I have used them, for example, to guide the strategic reflections of activist groups to lead those strategic reflections towards what we call high leverage points in a system. So these tools help us be more efficient in our change endeavors. That is, on those places in the system where a small action can lead to big changes. And for doing that, one needs to be able to see the system structure and understand it. And I recently came across a website that is called Twink. It's a group of engineers that they came up with a method that is called systems improvement process, which is a very interesting tool for anyone trying to implement system-based ideas. At Systems Innovation, there are as well introductory courses to the topic that are non-technical and of of a very good quality.
0: That was Mariana Mirabile an Argentinian ecological economist currently based in Paris, who is a partner in systems innovation.
1: If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps.
0: We'll be back in January 2021 with the first episode of a new 10-part series of Bridging the Gaps, which will include exploration of some potential high-leverage points for system change that FASTA and EHFF members have been exploring, such as changes in the politics of land, And the role of digital technology in society. So, we hope you join us in 2021.
1: Many thanks to Mariana Mirabile for her participation in this month's podcast. And thanks as always to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp and to all who helped in any way in the past year. Enriche Steve Goler.